people don't have the information. Medical decisions are being made for monetary and legal reasons, not because they're good for the mother and the baby. This is Pitocin, which is the medication given through the IV that causes contractions. Just check that she's on pit. Just make sure that yeah. she's on pit. And I asked to keep upping the pit. And if you're uncomfortable, we can always give you more. Is this an improvement or are we making things worse? Almost never. <laughs> Basically, what the medical profession has done is convince the vast majority of women that they don't know how to birth. If I could do that, I could do anything. To me, that's the power of birthing, and that is what we are taking away from women. It wasn't an illness. It wasn't something that needed to be numbed. It needed to be experienced. It was the most adventurous day I've ever had in my life. Pregnancy, birth, parenting, it means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are the kind that often get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we'll leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are birth conversations that matter. These are the Birth Talks. Are you ready? Hey listeners, we're back with the fourth episode of The Birth Talks. We just heard a clip from The Business of Being Born, a film that advocates for the natural birth movement as the medicalized approach to birth has taken away women's right to self-determine. But does this challenge to the mainstreaming of medicalized birth obscure as much as it reveals? Does the natural birth movement empower all women to self-determine or just speak on behalf of an elite group with privilege? This episode isn't a defense of the medicalized mainstream approach to birth, and neither is it an endorsement of the natural birth movement. What I want to ask is how we can become better doulas, midwives, and birth professionals by putting every woman's right to self-determination at the center of our work. We're a culture caught in dichotomies, good versus bad, men versus women, breast versus formula, natural versus medical. The colonial system which has shaped our present impacts our right as people to self-determine in multifaceted ways. In the debate between natural birth and medicalized birth, who's been left out? Who gets to be named as birth experts? Whose perspectives are ignored? These questions encourage us to think critically about the movements we're a part of. Often, it leaves us stuck facing oversimplified choices or having no choices that don't really reflect who we are or what we truly want. I speak with Candace Johnson, a professor of political science at the University of Guelph. Her work focuses on questions like this, but takes in Canadian as well as global contexts. Her research has been influenced by questions about North-South comparisons and the differences in experiences in countries of the global North and countries of the global South. She discovers that the cultural understandings of childbirth are very different. So why do some women, mostly privileged and in developed countries, demand less medical intervention in pregnancy and childbirth, while others, mostly vulnerable women in both developed and developing countries, demand more? 
Part of it can be explained by um, noticing that midwives in places like Kenya or Honduras, um, they don't exist in, in Cuba anymore, but in other parts of Central America or the global south um, are not formally trained. So they might be trained by other midwives in the community or family members or through their own experiences, but there isn't any sort of formal regulated training as such. And uh, that means that there is a, a higher element of, of risk associated with attendance by non-skilled practitioners. Um, and I think that uh, many women understand this in the context of, of developing countries and know that by, in, in some instances, not all, but being able to get to a clinic or being able to access uh, doctors or get to the hospital, I say in some instances because there are also you know, more cases, there was a, um, a lot of fear associated with the, not with the clinics that were closer to the communities, but the hospital that was very far away um, and had had a recent kind of scandal where there were, you know, 30 pregnant women that died in, in childbirth um, as a result of, I don't know, bacterial infection that went through the hospital or, or something. Um, so there are exceptions to everything that, uh, th that I'm saying, of course, here. But the trend is that, um, you know, women understand that they're, they're not very well served by their neighbor or the community member who might or might not really know what they're doing. Sometimes there are kind of personal conflicts in the community and they feel like they are uh, have been mistreated by the local midwife and, and so on. Um, so I think that, uh, that that is part of it um, for sure, that, that the, these attendants aren't skilled. And uh, so... So part of that is, you know, having their interests served by accessing medical care. Um, the other thing is that accessing medical care can be a marker of privilege and status in a lot of developing countries. So in being able to go to uh, a clinic or having access to a doctor means you're doing better than people who can't afford that at all. In some countries, women will do whatever they can to get to a doctor or have a cesarean section I had a student years ago who did uh, this research in Brazil that has, as you probably know, the highest cesarean section rates in the world. Um, and there are a lot of practical reasons why women would prefer to go and have a cesarean section, but it's also a marker of status and, and privilege. Um, so we have at least those two things overlapping and in, in starting to explain the differences in preferences. Which is like, if in contrast to here, those who have privilege here are the ones that can do home birth. That's right. So what, any ideas of what's going on there? Well, in terms of um, privileged women in and around Guelph, Ontario, or the greater T Toronto area, for example, I think that there is a cultural predisposition among some women to have a home birth. Um, I also found in the context of my own research study and from what I understand by the numbers uh, from the numbers overall is that it is still a very small part segment of the population that wants a home birth. There are, there's a growing segment that wants uh, attendance by midwives, but most of those women want to have a baby in, in the hospital. Um, but among those who prefer a home birth, I think that there's a, a cultural... Um, 
predisposition to sort of wanting to connect with nature, to do what um, women perceive as being natural or within the realm of women's experience, um, and rejecting technology and medicine as something that has been imposed on women um, unnecessarily. So uh, again, some of these things are not backed up by any good evidence. And the ways in which nature is conceived, I think, is is particularly interesting as well, because it's not just those women who want a home birth that talk about wanting to connect with nature. A lot of the women that I interviewed for my book said that they wanted a natural birth, and for some, it meant at home with nobody, um, really, uh, no medical staff in in attendance, and no medical procedures, and no medication, um, and for others, it meant not a surgical birth. They wanted to avoid a cesarean section, but they could have a natural birth and an epidural, or you know be attended by an obstetrician and, and so on. Were these women you interviewed in in not in Canada or in Cuba? Or? This was, I'm talking, this um, piece of the research was in Canada and I interviewed both Canadian-born women and immigrant women. And so um, overall, I think there were 121 women who participated in the study from 28 different countries. So it was a good way of taking a look at a diverse range of experiences within one single community. So what, what were you finding from your from your interviews? I, I found that Canadian-born women tended to be more open to the idea of, of midwifery or care by midwives, and immigrant women tended to um, reduce to, if not completely rejected, they tended they tended to um, want and prefer medical care. In cases where immigrant women said that they prefer to be attended by a midwife, it was for reasons mostly related to not having family in the area in Canada, um, that uh, they found that there was the approach by midwives um, um, having being attended by the same two midwives throughout the entire pregnancy, being guaranteed that they would be there at the birth, having follow-up care, having much longer and more intimate, longer meetings with midwives Mm -hmm. and more intimate sort of discussions throughout the pregnancy was something that served as a substitute for family. Whereas the Canadian-born women tended to talk about preference when there was a preference for for midwifery, tended to talk about that in terms of sort of women helping other women and doing things on our own um, and having the power, sort of reclaiming power that had been taken from other institutions and other places and so on. So very different justifications for sometimes the same phenomenon. What were you finding in Cuba? Cuba's a really interesting case because it had it has probably in many ways the most coercive policy um, among the countries that uh, I have studied for maternal health care. Women in Cuba don't have any choices about where to give birth or um, who will attend the birth. They have to give birth in a maternity hospital 
and they will be attended by an obstetrician. That's just the way that it goes. Um, so there are no options for um, birth in clinics or birth in the home or having a midwife or, or anything like that. And so in my larger study on preferences and justifications for that preferences, Cuba was interesting because I was asking women about preferences in a hypothetical sort of way because they, they didn't have any. But what I found was that they really didn't resist that idea too much. Um, they would even in a an imaginary um, state of affairs where they could have anything they want, they, they still said that they would prefer to be in a hospital with medical doctors in, in attendance um, for a variety of reasons, some of which um, related to uh, being able to demonstrate or, or the importance of demonstrating that Cuba had progressed significantly from the days before the revolution where there was a lot of inequality that privileged women could have excellent care in hospitals and there were high rates of maternal mortality in the rural areas of Cuba where women didn't have access to doctors or any other kinds of um, um, skilled uh, assistance for childbirth. So that was that was part of it. They also thought it was an important marker of sort of distinction between Cubans and other Latin Americans who hadn't made this this sort of progress. Uh, they they identified it as a human rights issue. Cubans are well aware. Uh, the women that I spoke to, many were well aware that Cuba had made certain human rights um, commitments, and there are human rights guarantees for health care for for maternal um, for maternal care and other and, and care in other areas as well. And that to sort of reject that would be to reject your own rights. Um, so they were certainly not just blindly accepting what the government was telling them they had to do, even though they had to do it. They, they didn't like the course of nature of it. They didn't like that the hospitals weren't clean or well-stocked, that they couldn't see the same doctor um, throughout their pregnancy. Uh, there were lots of things that they didn't like, but they didn't really question the model of care. Um, many of them said, you know, this is all very interesting to talk about how you'd want to give birth and whether it should be this or that or hospital or at home. But the real challenge starts after the baby is born and there are no resources. There is not enough money to buy things for the baby. Sometimes it's hard to get food. Um, there are all kinds of things that make it very difficult for a family to kind of um, uh bond as a family because of the housing crisis there are multiple generations living in the same household it's very very difficult they said if you want to talk about things that are difficult let's talk about after the baby's born what happens during the birth is really just sort of a matter of practical necessity and there's not too much sentimentality bound up in that right so to that to to human women that you've interviewed it was a privilege to think about the preferences that people that, that they could have had during their labor is, is that yeah I think that that would be a good way to to put it that um, it would be a, a privilege to be able to think through a, a wide range of of options um, but also interesting that when that sort of spelled out for them 
they still think that they would choose the the model that mm. they had, um, but a, an improved version of that model. So I'm just kind of putting my myself into the head of people listening. Who you know, especially I think if you're thinking I'm thinking about the doulas that I that I work with, or um, some of them hearing this and being like, oh my god, those. Those, those poor women, like, are you sure that they really know what they're talking about? Are they, are you sure they know that they're making the right choice? Um, because here, you know, we, that's a source of reclaiming power is being able to choose where you get to birth. Yeah, I think that's really interesting for a number of reasons. First, I think it's interesting for me as an academic, as a methodological issue, because I think there are a lot of assumptions that marginalized women or immigrant women or women in other countries somehow don't really understand what they're doing or what their own interests are. They don't get that, you know, if they had better conditions, their lives would be improved. Um, I think that there's a little bit of arrogance in that. And I think that in many instances, in my experience, that has not been true at all. So I think that we should be careful in assuming that women in Cuba who are living under some sort of socialist rock, who um, only have one option and they have to be not just sort of go through that one model, but they have to be happy about it as well. I think that is that is a mistake. I think that women I have talked to in all kinds of different locations from different backgrounds privileged, marginalized, and everything in between, often have a pretty good understanding of what they're, uh, what they're up against. Talking to women and seeing the, the narrative, so that the transcribed interviews. Um, in Cuba, women were not interviewed on, on tape recording because that was a bit risky. They were asked to write out their, their responses. So in reading through that, um, I was probably surprised myself at the kinds of details and nuances that I didn't expect to see. Like, so, like when? In, uh, so for example, um, women talking about, as I just mentioned, how difficult it is after the baby is born and that that's a big issue. Talking about health as a human right. Um, these aren't things that I expected to come up. I thought that women would say, oh yeah, I wish we had, would have better um, uh, better options, uh, but they pointed to a whole bunch of other things that I never would have thought about as someone who does not live in Cuba and hasn't experienced them the way that they've experienced them. So that's what I mean by sort of taking a step back and letting women tell their own stories so that we can see what kinds of things are they navigating? How do they weigh the the evidence? Um, so those are some of the things that, uh, that I... Uh, um, was surprised by in the, in the case of, of Cuba, having women talk about the importance of having this advanced level of health care. And they're, they're aware of the health indicators and that some of them are better than the American health indicators um, for the same sorts of things and definitely better from other Latin American countries. But that is a source of pride for them, even if, even at, if at the same time, they have a critique of their own regime. Um, they talked about um, wanting to have the same doctor 
throughout pregnancy. This is something that women talked about everywhere. Um, and I would expect that it would be sort of consistent around the globe if I were to expand it. I uh, want to be attended by the same person. I think I'm, I'm starting to actually think about two, two things that's happening here. So there's so in the national birth movement here in Canada and in the States, um, I'd say that the reclamation of feminist voices are, are happening through the natural childbirth movement. And But what I'm hearing too, when you take the example of Cuba, is that you, you do have women's, strong women's voices coming through um, um, in a different way. The identity of the natural birth movement, I think, may feel very threatened by different kinds of women's voices, for example, who say, I don't, to me, I want to be in a hospital, I want to be with a doctor. Mm-hmm. So so there's that second part that's going on that's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging people to say, well, how can you not want, um, how can you not want that if you want to be an empowered female? The, the, wide array of voices that comes through. I think that in part it has been the diversity of voices, certainly in Canada, has been enabled by the natural childbirth movement. And there were some very good reasons for the development of this movement and for asking some serious questions about what was happening um, in hospitals and at the hands of doctors and if there weren't other, other options. Um, so I think that the critical voice that formed over, you know, the 1970s and 80s and maybe uh, on through, you know, the, the 1990s until, until today, um, started to ask questions about unnecessary levels of medical intervent- intervention, started to um, uh complain about medicalization, this sort of um, a medical approach to things that don't, don't require it, um, ask questions about the experience of childbirth itself and its larger cultural meanings and, and what the importance of that is, because I think for many women that is important. Um, and there, has been, there have been a lot of instances of uh, medicine overreaching in and sort of um, increasing rates of cesarean section when it's not indicated just to accommodate you know doctor schedules or to try to reduce um, liability suits in the context of the United States and so on um, uh, medications that were prescribed to women that either diminished the experience of childbirth itself or caused uh, birth defects in uh, in newborns so, there is, there were some really good uh, reasons to start asking questions and to and to say, uh, you know, if we can do it without all of this, then you know, no thanks to to medicine. We'll um, we'll go a different route. However, what I think has happened is that there has developed a, a very um, sort of combative and and binary approach um, to childbirth as being one that is medically determined or rejects medicine. And a lot of the women in my study talked about wanting more collaboration, more combining of the two approaches. Um, And what's interesting is that contemporary midwifery really is in many ways a combination of those two approaches because 
um, it is an integrated health profession. It is regulated. It does follow um, a lot of medical protocols. Midwives uh, are trained in doing a significant number of medical procedures. So, um, but the way that the professions function can still be quite adversarial. And I think that women experience that and would prefer not to, would prefer a model that that kind of uh, combines the best of both worlds. How, as birth workers or consumers of birth, do we engage with every person's right to self-determine? How does our part in the natural birth or medicalized birth movement impact women's reproductive choices? How do we begin to understand who we are and the roots of our own ideologies so that reproductive justice can be accessible to all? Join us next time for our special series finale on allies. That's it for today, folks. If you love this episode, please leave the podcast a review or subscribe on iTunes to keep it going. Think you have a birth conversation that matters and want to share? We're always looking for stories, so contact me at www.thebirthtalks.com or on Facebook. If you have comments about today's episode, find me on Twitter or Facebook at The Birth Talks or use the hashtag The Birth Talks. I'm your host, Mango, and until next time, live life, love true, and keep it real.